Welcome to Table Talk, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the dynamic and exciting restaurant world. We sit down with industry leaders as they share best practices, highlight smart solutions, and discuss strategies for growth, ultimately helping food service operators learn how to affect positive change and grow their business. Now, here is your host, editor and publisher of Food Service and Hospitality Magazine, Rosanna Kyra. This morning, my guest on Table Talk is Joshna Maharaj. Joshna is a chef, a two-time TEDx speaker, and an activist who wants to help everyone have a better relationship with their food. She believes strongly in the power of chefs and social gastronomy to bring values of hospitality, sustainability, and social justice to the table. Joshna has just released her first book, Take Back the Tray, about her work building new models for institutional food procurement, production, and service. She has won a World Gourmand Cookbook Award and has been nominated for a Toronto Book Award for 2020. Joshna teaches post-secondary students, hosts Kitchen Help Desk, weekly food column on CBC Radio, and she co-hosts a food podcast called Hot Plate. So good morning, Joshna, and thank you so much for being here today. I know these are crazy days and crazy mm. times, so we really appreciate you making the time. Oh, you're so welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so I thought um, I thought it'd be great to start off with, I guess, some exciting news about your book. I see you've, um, you've you're up for some awards. And I know that's very cool. The Toronto Book Award is feels especially exciting because it focuses on books that have Toronto-based content. Isn't that wonderful? Well, congratulations. Thanks, thanks. And uh, and it's cool to be a nonfiction book beside fiction books that are, you know, that are, that are, you know, stories about the city. Uh, But, you know, I I think I'm one of the only nonfiction-y or this kind of like, so have with this like social political slant on my work, uh, but anchored in Toronto, which I really like. Wonderful. Well, I read the book earlier this year. um, Thank you. Before the pandemic. Um, (laughs) And, and I loved it. I thought you did a great job with it. Thank you, and thank you. Um, I think you really hit some really important hot buttons. So, so kudos to you for doing that uh, and taking that on. Um, and it's, it's nice to actually start with some good news these days because yes. we've had a lot of bad news. Ooh, it's um, true. Yeah, terrible, terrible times. But uh, hopefully there's some light at the end of the tunnel soon. Um, I thought we could start off maybe telling us, or you could tell us a little bit about yourself. Obviously, you're very well known in Toronto culinary circles, but where were you born? How did you get into the industry? Mm, Um, Tell us a little bit about uh, about yourself, because our podcast is listened to by people in different parts of the world, too. So they may not be familiar with you. Cool. Uh, For sure. So I was born in South Africa. Uh, I moved to Canada when I was 18 months old. Uh, So sometimes that is that identity is little more than just like a, a, you know, a a sign on my passport, really. Right. It's uh, very Mm -hmm. quickly at a young age. I moved. We moved here to Canada. Uh, But uh, but the curiosity is that my family is Indian in heritage. But we have this little a few generations uh, that have lived in Africa. And so then we my family moved from there to here. Um, and uh, we've been sort of in the suburbs uh, ever since. Uh, now, as a grown-up person, I live in the city. Um, but for sure, my road to the kitchen was uh, was a surprise. I did not anticipate this. Uh, I had very different ideas for my career, for what I was going to do with my life. Uh, but at the same time, I am the oldest female child in an Indian family, so there's no way that I was going <laughs> to escape the kitchen, right? That, right. There's no way. Uh, there's no way. And so, uh, and really, like, uh, I, can, I can think back to those times being in the kitchen with my mom and my aunties uh, and listening to them cooking and chatting and laughing, and my job was to, like, chop vegetables and wash dishes and get stuff from the basement, <laughs> you know what I mean? All the fun stuff. Uh, yeah, exactly. That was it. But they're, like, in the middle of it all is where I became familiar with sounds and smells, uh, you know, particularly of the Indian kitchen, because that's what was happening around me. Sure. Uh, right. But it's it, it at, at that time as a kid, it was never a thing that I was like, oh, this is what I want to do. I, I my only hope was that at some point somebody would teach me. Right. Because the way they would just sort of pull little jars of powders uh, and spices out of the cupboard and just know how much 
needed to go in. Like nobody was using a recipe or a measuring spoon or anything, right? right? It was just like how it sounds, how it smells, uh, how it looks, uh, were all of these things. And I remember being curious as a little, as a, as a young person about when that knowledge, when that knowledge was going to arrive for me. Interesting. Right. When was I going to learn all of that? Um, and so it was only much later after I graduated from university. Uh, so I went to university and I did a degree in religious studies and women's studies. Oh, really? Wow. That's which, far removed uh, from cooking. Indeed. indeed. Uh, and it just it makes me awesome. And the person you want on your trivia team, <laughs> for sure. Um, but the, clearly there's no job at the end of that. Um, but right. I made this deal with my parents that they would be cool with me going to live in the mountains in India for a year uh, wow. in a little ashram, which is like a, a Hindu monastery, essentially. Yeah. Um, and that the promise was that they would be cool with me going for a year to live there and that I would come back with a plan for my life. Interesting. Uh, right? And like, these are the deals you make when you're 24 years old, right? <laughs> That sounds really exciting. So, um, so did that time um, in India kind of make you realize what you wanted to do? Or, yes, or did you- yes. I, uh, I wasn't sure. And I was like going for walks and eating mangoes and like very happy with myself. Uh, but the people there, the people who worked in the ashram were lots of local folks. You know, it was a very rural village that was around us. And they were so curious. They were like, who is she? What is she doing here? Who are her insane parents that have just left her to, you know what I mean? I was 24 right. uh, yep. and not getting any riper in terms of being marriageable, right? TikTok, right. things were happening. Yep. And they just, they really thought that they were going to save me uh, because they were just like, they were like, what on earth? Who are these insane parents? So they dragged me into the kitchen um, and they they taught me how to make chapatis was the first thing, right? And that the version of the ones that we made there were a bit different um, mm-hmm. than the ones that were made in my house. And and the other truth was that I had to make enough for sixty people. Oh my goodness! Right, so they quite literally had me on my haunches kneading dough, right? And and the thing about the kitchen in this in this context is that it is in a Hindu context, a kitchen is a sacred space. So you take your shoes off, you work barefoot and you sit on little benches on the floor um, and you chop vegetables in your lap, uh, right? Everything is, there's no stainless steel. There's no crisp white linens or steel toed boots or any of that happening, Mm -hmm. right? And, but just the vibe of it all, right? I was just, I was, I fell deeply in love with all of it. Uh, And I was like, I love doing this. I love feeding people. Um, I love watching this happen. I love the joking and conviviality in the kitchen before we get there, you know, before Mm -hmm. we uh, put the food out. And then it all clicked the fact that I actually, this could be a job and this is something that I could do for a living. Um, And so I sent a proclamation home to my parents and told them that this was the plan. Uh, and that, and I had this plan that I was going to apply for the, the first ever online application from my little, from my little, like only, you know, two rolling blackouts in a day <laughs> mountain ashram dial up computer access. It Incredible. Was really funny. Yeah. It was really, really funny. So you did come back after the year and I did. you went to culinary school? I did. I went to culinary school here in Toronto. I went to George Brown uh, and I did that one, a one year uh, chef training program, which was perfect because I had already had enough of school. Right. Uh, so this was a nice fit. Um, so that was that. And now we're at probably 2002 was when I graduated from George Brown. Okay, great. So once you got that, um, the schooling under your belt and you knew yeah. what you wanted to do, what did you decide about restaurants and, you know, where you wanted to work and, and what you wanted to create? Uh, was there a turning point there or, or did that happen quite accidentally in terms of where you started? Yeah, no, there was a turning point because my all of that food love that had grown for me while I was in India was this very like good feelings and nice intentions and thinking about the transfer of energy and the great responsibility of being a cook. Like these were really sort of like deep, soulful things. Um, And it was like day one at cooking school when it became super clear to me that there was no room for that in the in this professional kitchen context. 
right? And uh, and it was nobody was thinking about good feelings and you know and and positive connections or any of that. It was very technical. Uh, it was very structured. Um, and it was very white and it was very male. Right. Uh, and that was that was a really important thing for me to drink in because in my like my lab section, there's probably two hundred or something of us in the whole class. In my lab section of about thirty students that would sort of move around together, there were three women. Wow. And this was early 2000, you're saying? 2001. Yeah, 2001 was when I started. So, I mean, about 20 years ago, basically. And um, so interesting when you say that and you look back and you see only three women, how would you say that has evolved into where we are now? Do you see that totally different? Uh, I mean, obviously, there's more women coming into the industry these days, but is it still a tough, tough sledding for women coming into this industry? I think, I don't think that we have sorted it all out yet, but I think that one of the most important moves that has been made is the space to object and to talk about it, right? And and there's mm-hmm. been some collective acknowledgement that that, that crazy, um, that call that, you know what I mean? That like super dude culture in the kitchen uh, mm-hmm. is actually not, ac- not acceptable. Uh, You're seeing that more often. Yeah, we're definitely seeing it. We're definitely seeing it. Right. And things are being called out, uh, you know, for better or for worse or for sure. That's not a comfortable uh, conversation, Uh, but it is definitely it's different. There, There not only are there more women in these classes, uh, but I am, I am quite sure that the incidents of this, of the, the, like, it was just the most ridiculous nonsense that, that, mm-hmm. that, that, that the women were put through, right. It really For was, sure. it really was a, 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 a sort of hazing. Um, and like, it would even be stupid things, right. Stupid, stupid things. Like I remember, uh, one day uh, in working in the, you do the, there's like a restaurant on site that we learn about service and, you know, and how to work at different stations. Mm -hmm. And one day I got put on the entree, which that night was a, was a mixed grill special. Mm -hmm. And so I had like five or six different pieces of things to grill and serve up. And through the like two and a half hours of time we had in the kitchen to prep for service, every guy in the kitchen had to come by and ask grill me with questions about how I was going to prepare these various meats. Really? Right. They all wanted to be sure that I knew what I was doing. (laughs) Incredible. Oh, like 27 of them. Right. It really all of them. And even the few who were friends with me who came by and I was like, you too, buddy, you can't resist this, huh? That's incredible. It's so amazing to me. Uh, to witness this and I was like I, I remember standing at that grill thinking oh man what a deal. <laughs> this is not I can't do this for my life for my job this is crazy so how did you deal with that Josh no, I mean obviously as women in an industry that is primarily male dominated we've all had instances where that's happened but yeah how did you deal with that because that becomes debilitating too right time and time again totally and I I would I would i pushed back and I, you know, exclaimed about how ridiculous it was. And I was not taken seriously at all. Everyone sort of laughed and rolled their eyes. And and I was more uh, the problem who, you know what I mean? I was the problem because I was saying, so you know what I mean? I was making a big deal out of something. Sure. Um, And so, I mean, all of that together paired with the fact that just the vibe around the food was it was just different to the one that I was hoping for. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was just it was it didn't feel quite right. And so really the big lesson that I learned upon graduating from culinary school was having a very clear idea of what I did not want to do. Sure. Sure. Uh, which, listen, was not very exciting news for my parents. Uh, right? <laughs> they were like, I thought this was a more solid plan. Uh, right. And all I can say is that I don't want to work in a restaurant or a hotel or, you know, and that's that is like uh, overwhelmingly those were the two options, restaurant, hotel. So you really made a concerted decision at that point to say, yes, you loved food and you wanted to cook, but you didn't want to do it in restaurants or hotels. Yep. You got it. Interesting. Uh, uh, and so what I did know for sure was that whatever it was that I was going to do was going to have to be something that I'd build for myself. Interesting. Okay. Uh, right. I was like, you got to figure it out. This means enough. And I felt it. You know what I mean? I felt called to it. I felt like this was the right move for me. I spent all this time in the mountains. You know what I mean? Considering and meditating mm-hmm. and thinking about it. So I was like, okay, look, this is not the call. This is not the right place, but that doesn't mean this isn't the right work. Uh, I just have to find another way to do this. 
a tough decision. It was, it was, and it was, it was discouraging for sure, because I really had put a lot of eggs in the basket of the fact that this would be a really smooth, natural transition. So where did you transition to? What did you decide? Uh, I mean, obviously food was your love. Yep. My first job, I actually, my first uh, cooking job was at a place called Dish Cooking Studio here in Toronto. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Uh, And I had the job of doing the early morning pastries and soups and sandwiches for the cafe. Right. Right. I showed up early and made scones and muffins and sandwiches and soups. Um, And I honestly, I loved it. Right. It was wonderful. I was delighted uh, to be in this context and doing my thing, getting started somehow. Uh, Dish had uh, a few angles on business. There was a catering business. There's the cafe. And then there was also uh, teaching a cooking school. And soon enough into my time there, I got a crack at teaching cooking classes. And I got to say, like, that was really where the magic happened. Really? I was, I realized how much I loved teaching uh, and how much I loved getting people excited about cooking. Uh, right. And, and it, it became very clear to me that my magic is going to be less about the plate of food that I'm going to make you and mm-hmm. more about teaching you how to make it for yourself. Interesting. Uh, right. So- that became clear. Yeah. So you stayed there for a while or did you end up? I stayed um, there. I did stay there probably three or three or four years, which in, okay. I guess, in Sheffy time, this is, you know, solid amount yeah, of time. That's a solid number. Yeah. Um, but in the middle of that, I actually, I did two, I held two jobs at once because probably two years into that time is when I was introduced to the stop. Uh, right. And right. And the, the folks at the stop uh, were had, were holding a fundraiser at Dish and I was assisting the chef. Uh, and I learned about this organization and the work that they do there uh, for listeners. They are a community food center in the West end of Toronto with a really innovative, holistic approach to building community food security. Um, and they, uh, and I was very excited about them and the work that they did. Uh, and then beautifully, there was an opening for a cook and they needed somebody to cook lunches. Uh, then it was just twice a week lunches. And uh, and so one thing led to the next, because, listen, the the curious reality of this all, Rosanna, was that this job in nonprofit was actually uh, was actually much more uh, lucrative and secure than any other kitchen job that existed. Isn't that interesting? Right. There was it was permanent. There were benefits. Mm -hmm. There was vacation time. uh, Right. It was it was work that I was very excited to do. Uh, and that, and that was fascinating for me. I was like, huh, okay, this is the, this is what we're trading off here. And so I took that job and I was concerned. I was a bit worried that I might be closing the door on any culinary dreams that I had, because really Mm -hmm. there was no, there's no, there's no crisp white jackets or anything down the nonprofit road. Right. 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 Uh, and so I, I was concerned about that, but at the same time, it really felt right. And it felt like this was a place where my crazy ideas about food could really have a, a, a time, you know, a venue or a time to shine. Um, so I took the job and I remember uh, it was either, it was either I was going to take the job at the stop or I was going to go teach English in Japan. <laughs> right. I had, right. Exactly. I was like, I need to, it needs to be some sort of adventure, whatever we're doing. It needs to be right. good and exciting. Uh, so it was one of, I had gotten the acceptance letter to teach English in Japan. Um, and so I chose the stop, but I made this promise to myself that just because people don't, didn't pay for the meals that I was cooking did not mean that my kitchen were, was not going to run the way every other professional kitchen was, would run sure. in the city. Right. I said, the, we, we don't just do things to be paid to do them, right? There's still integrity value. in our craft. Yeah, value. Yeah, yeah, right? And there's, there's integrity in our craft and there's no reason why the kitchen shouldn't operate uh, in the same way, uh, right? And so that was my goal, to be able to see if I could pull that off and to really attempt to lift, the, to lift that kitchen, right? Both in, in how it was set up, you know, and how it, how it operated, but then in the role that it played in serving that community. And honestly, that is really where things got super exciting. And that's where so much of the chef that I am now was built for sure. I will say that. 
And it was groundbreaking too, in terms of a role for you, for you and for the Toronto yeah, community. It was, it was, it was definitely a bit of a surprise thing because we, you, you know, and you'd see usually at food events when they have like community food partners and stuff, they're like, there's like a section of tables off to the side where you have the communities and they have their sweet little brochures and pamphlets about their programs and the, all of it. But I decided to pull out of those spaces and actually have a food table. Uh, right. And I remember the the picnic at the Brickworks was one of the first ones, was one of the first mm-hmm. big events. Um, and it was so fascinating to see how being able to serve somebody something delicious while telling them about our, you know, our food insecurity uh, strategies or dining programs or whatever, you know, whatever it was, was a really, was a really good way to deliver that message to build our community, our donor base, all that sort of stuff. People were surprised and they'd eat a delicious thing. Uh, and then like the funny thing is they'd be like where can I come and get this uh and I'd stumble because uh, I wasn't exactly necessarily going to invite them for lunch twice a week because you know that's not entirely that's not entirely the point but it was it was a sweet it was really lovely for me to see that this different approach was really well received right people stood there for a moment eating this food and listening to what we had to say uh about our work uh you know and and just how uh how important uh, issues around hunger and food security are so with with that job, I, I guess you were there for a couple of years. I was there for five years. Five. It was that long. Mm-hmm. Wow. And and I know you've also then worked in various institutions like um, the hospital setting. You know, whether yes. it was Scarborough Hospital, Sick Kids, Toronto Sick Kids Hospital, yep. Ryerson. Did that basically all of those jobs? Did that happen right after the stop, or how did those come about? Yeah, pretty much. There was a little bit of time in between. I had a brief stint running a cafe in the Rom for a little while. Um, but that came about actually because the, the Scarborough Hospital themselves were looking for some help. They had the idea that they really wanted to sort, you know what I mean, to th- rethink their food mm-hmm. service. Um, and really, they were coming at it from a, from a like from a patient experience perspective. Right. And like on the list of things were like rethinking gowns and 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 you know what I mean? And bedding and linens like they were just really sort of doing a a reevaluation of the patient experience and delightfully food was on the list. So they reached out to our food community for some help. And this landed with me. Oh, interesting. Um, And yes, go ahead, please. No, I was going to say, you know, when we think of hospitals, we always think of bad quality food, you know, and and, and it's ironic because you're there to get better, but who would want to eat some of that food to get better and more energy? So you you did a lot of really exciting things in that hospital environment. And I'd love for, for you to speak about that for a few moments in terms of how you changed that whole mindset about what it means to have hospital food. Mm-hmm. Thank you. It was a, a really mega, mega lesson, right? I was, the, the mandate that I had was focused on putting more locally sourced food onto institutional plates, right? Uh, that was the piece. We had a nice little bit of funding uh, to explore this and figure it out. But truthfully, I thought to myself, if I have, if I can wedge my foot in the door here and have this institution open to talking about food, then we're really going to talk about it, right? And I'm going to start, I want to talk about uh, scratch cooking. I want to talk about more cultural diversity. I want to talk about more wholesome food connections, uh, all while, you know, under the umbrella of this local food connection. Um, and listen, I'm delighted. The, the most wonderful thing is the fact that the kind folks at the Scarborough Hospital were bought what I was selling. Right. They were in uh, for my big promises of revolution. Right. Uh, and they and they and they they undertook this mega task of really overhauling the patient menu. Uh, there's 324 beds in that hospital. Um, and obviously there's also like there's a regular menu for like, say, 60, 70 percent of the population. And then there are like 35, 40 different therapeutic diets. Uh, that you have to make adjustments for, right? And all varieties of of, of uh, distinctions. Um, and so the thing is, we just started, right? We started with um, really thinking about 
what kind of food we wanted to serve, right? There was some beautiful thoughts, even just among the kitchen staff themselves about what healing food needs to be. And then thinking through the fact that what healing food for this community in Scarborough needs to be, Mm -hmm. right? Strong Caribbean, Southeast Asian, South Asian population of folks there. Um, But we were serving them, uh, you know what I mean? Uh, Beef stroganoff. Uh, and all these sort of weird things <laughs> from like from like recipe manuals, you know, dietetic uh, recipe manuals from days from gone 50 by. Fifty years. Yeah, ago. yeah, exactly, right. Uh, and so here's the thing, though. Uh, obviously, the first, at least the first couple of weeks, I just spent watching and observing and learning, and just seeing how this machine ran. Um, and that's really where the truth of our very threadbare. Uh, investment in hospital food revealed itself, right? Because for 324 beds, there was one full-time cook. Wow. Right? And so and so, what that means, and she like, listen, she's a powerhouse. Debbie, unbelievably uh, capable and caring, um, but still, right? And what that meant was that she would put a parka on, go into the freezer, pull out <laughs> bags of frozen chopped onions and peppers and care, whatever it was. Right. And then uh, she would get cases of already cooked shredded strips of meat. And all of this would get chucked into a steam kettle and right. really just like warmed up, right? Um, and then it would be finished off with a cornstarch slurry of some sort. Wow. <laughs> right. And and like one of the things that really struck me was in professional kitchens. I don't know if you've seen these, but there are these rubber, these big rubber made bins, these big white bins on yes. casters that roll under the counter. Right. For like right. flour and sugar mm-hmm. and all these sorts of things. So this hospital had flour. Which made sense. But right beside it was cornstarch. Right. And wow. such a giant thing of a giant bin of cornstarch. I was like, what is happening in this kitchen? Because this is a huge use. Usually cornstarch is like a, you know, about a liter, you know, like a hot chocolate, you know, tin of things and save uh, like a a, a serious Chinese kitchen. Right. There is absolutely, there's, you know, for sure that will show up and it makes sense in that context because Chinese and Southeast Asian cuisine uses cornstarch quite readily. Right. But there is, there was, I was like, there's no, what is going on here? And I, and what I started to realize was that corn, so a cornstarch slurry is you mix cornstarch with some water, you make a little, like a little paste, and then you add that to your pot on the stove, increase the heat and the heat activates the cornstarch, which starts to thicken up the whole mixture, right? right. That's Mm -hmm. the story. Um, But what I realized was happening was that the food ingredients that were frozen and processed in the carts in the, you know what I mean, in the boxes in the freezer were really uh, pretty dead food, right? This food had really like been so long surrendered, whatever energy or goodness it had inside of it, right? It was like an edible food-like substance at this point. Um, And so there's nothing to it. So we, they were attempted to prop these things back up with a cornstarch slurry to add some texture and body to this thing because it had been literally processed out of all of these ingredients. That's horrible. Oh, from like the culinary perspective on this was just like red flag after red flag in my head, right? Uh, from that, that was really a key piece for me. Um, and in this process, I also, it became very conspicuous to me, the absence of knives, oil, and salt in the kitchen. Really? Right? And that, like you walk into any professional kitchen, you will have a very easy job of locating the knives, oil and the salt. Right. Nobody does anything in that kitchen without accessing at least of one of those pieces. Right. And so then I started to think about, well, what what does this mean? What's happening in this kitchen? Uh, right. Nothing is being chopped and processed. Not at all. Um, nothing is being uh, sauteed. No, you know, no aromatics are being browned. No flavor is being developed that way. No caramelization. None of that is happening. Incredible. And, and nothing is being seasoned, right? No salt. And quite likely because there is already more than adequate sodium in these, you know, uh, in, in the preservatives, in the sense of preservative in this food already. So uh, that, that's just incredible, Joshna. And when, when you look at, obviously, that's just one hospital. Yes. And you've had experience in, in a few others. Was the yes. same thing happening elsewhere, too? 
Uh, yes, definitely. Yes. And, and what, what I learned, though, is that there are different models for hospital food service. Right. Um, and there are the, the big distinction between whether they actually produce anything on site and plate it up like more sort of old school style, like they had a conveyor belt and the whole bit in the kitchen. But then there's another model called the retherm model, mm-hmm. where it's essentially food comes in already cooked, portioned and frozen and staff work quite literally with parkas on and, f- mm-hmm. and fingerless gloves right to they work in freezers to assemble these trays that go into these hot boxes that get plugged in and it all raises to a good safe temperature about 165 right right? and then these carts are wheeled out to patients and those are the meals and and the the dream that they paint is that there's a hot side and a cold side right so they they just the, the staff just sort of plate the appropriate things on either side but the seals are not great and so the the perennial complaint from patients is about warm milk and limp salad greens well that sounds very appetizing right exactly exactly and very often too like one of the other crazy things i discovered was that in one hospital we learned that the distance between the kitchen and the patient rooms was so vast and that the staff had to you know push these carts a major distance and in the journey all of the soup would slosh all over the tray Oh my goodness. So by the time the train, no, exactly. And by the time it got to the the patient, it was a solid mess. Oh Uh, my God. Right. Those, those are the two options uh, that were, that were available, right? Really. That was all that was happening. And so I was like, uh, I just, I got my, like, it took my breath away to think about how many hospitals, how many people, uh, this whole country, right. You start thinking about Toronto, then Ontario, then the country. And and it's, uh, it is a terrifying reality. So I would assume this is what uh, fueled you to write your your book. Yes, definitely. Uh, And particularly after getting a crack at another institution, right? I I had a chance to move over and try my hand at this in education uh, at Ryerson University. And that's really when I I understood the fuller bit about what it's going to take to rebuild the food systems in our institutions. Um, And I actually learned that there are some objective truths about about that effort um, that, and, that, and that people were interested and they were they wanted to learn more. And if the need to put something in people's hands uh, really started becoming a reality. And that is where the idea of the book emerged from. So is the institutional, the educational side, you're saying there are similar issues there as well as in hospitals? Oh, yes, definitely. Uh, the depth of the bureaucracy, uh, the real... Um, the segregation of values uh, is is a, is a great way to say that. The context is a bit different, um, and one of the one of the freedoms I think in education was that I had a bit more room to move with uh, rolling out you know costs to the end user in a way that you don't in the hospital, right? And so, for example, what that would mean is I wanted to put a grass fed burger on the menu mm-hmm. uh, at, at uh, on campus, you know, in the main cafeteria at Ryerson. And when I got, when we, when we did the numbers and figured it all out, it was an extra 25 cents that the burger needed to go up. Right. Right. To, to, to make these costs work. And so we decided to put a sign up and talk, tell the story about this wonderful family, the Van Gronigans, mm-hmm. uh, who were raising cattle and doing a wonderful job. And that explained why the cost of the burger had increased. And? Uh, and no zero complaints, lots of excitement about how delicious the burger was. I mean, 25 cents doesn't yeah, seem that it's much not. anyway. It's not. And, and I, think, I think it helps when you take the time to explain why, not just, you know, that we're looking to pinch you guys for a little bit more. So after having gone through these experiences, mm-hmm. you obviously tried to make an impact and make a difference. Yes. Did you feel that you did? in terms of what you left behind and where, excuse me, where things stand today? I mean, do you see changes in, in those areas today from as a result of what you did? Yeah, yes and no. Um, yes, uh, I, definitely, I definitely feel that there was impact and usefulness, right? Uh, but one of the things that I have really had to kind of rework in my own mind 
is my own expectations for what I could have actually pulled off. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. Because I mean, there's so many pieces involved here. One of the key pieces for me was about funding. Um, right. Because I would get just a year's worth of grant funding to attempt to unravel something that was at right. least, 20, you know, 25 years in the making. In the making. Yeah. Right? If we imagine in hospitals, uh, the, the, the sharpest cuts to budgets came from the Harris conservatives in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. And we're still sort of we're still sort of cleaning we're still up. living from we're that. Still, yeah. Absolutely. And cleaning up that mess. Right. For sure. Part of the reason why this work exists is because of that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to, to, to think that ratio is off because it took me six months to just figure out what was going on Incredible. Uh, right never mind rebuilding a thing now uh at the same time uh i had two and a half years at ryerson and so we really actually were able to make some change and to realize the impact of that change uh we really started to see it and it was it was impacts on things like the culture of food the temperament of the students uh i sadly did not get any connections to academic performance just yet but from the back end, the, um, the connections to local small business, to supporting local agriculture, all of these wins really started to reveal themselves. And so while I sometimes get a bit fraught at the fact that not all of the changes that I have made have stuck and you know what I mean? And that I haven't sort of permanently made adjustments. I think that what I have done is, is, uh, is you know what I mean? I ventured into the belly of the beast to figure out what was going on and what change was going to, you know, what was, what change was going to require. And I, uh, and, and I, uh, I, I realized what is possible and I have a model. Right. I know how to do this. Uh, so, so often when I was writing my book, I was really uh, I felt really, really wound up about the fact that I didn't have a more successful tale to tell about the legacy that's been left. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I realized two important things. One is the pilot project is not the thing that sustains permanently throughout, you know, throughout history. Mm-hmm. The pilot project is just to figure out how to do this and if it's right. possible, right? That was my job. That version yeah. of the thing that I create is not going to be the thing that actually gets sustained. Uh, but I think what the, the benefit of what I have done is said, here's the problem, here's the solution, here are the resources we need. Uh, I'm ready to do it, but we all, like some, we all need to start taking this more seriously and think about investing in this change. And that's, oh my God, that's massive. I mean, what you've, what you've done is incredible, but then you well, look you. at now where we're at with COVID and yeah. what's happening in hospitals and nursing homes mm-hmm. today. And, you know, when you look at that, are we now going to go back 20 years because of this crisis? I mean, how are we going to get to where we need to go during, I mean, obviously we're not going to do it during this time, but my point is, how does what does that bode for the future? How long is that going to take to to make these massive changes that really need to be made? Mm-hmm. There are uh, what I'm most excited about is uh, in since 2011, which was when I first started uh, at the hospital in Scarborough. There has been a swell of uh, focus and interest, uh, and to some degree, some investment in rethinking these these food systems in hospitals right. and in um and in post like and in schools in general um and it should be noted that the third element here is prisons yes. right is the third institution i have not had the the chance to get into a prison and do some work uh but i i like to include it all you know i like to because it's these three pockets are are really the the, the basis of where institutions you know, what they're doing and what that's all about. Um, and so I think I, I'm very encouraged by what I see and what I see from my colleagues around the country and around the world, right? The, this is not just something we are dealing with. I hear it everywhere, right? Except for places like uh, uh, Copenhagen and Japan, right? Denmark mm-hmm. and Japan have this sorted out. Japanese hospital trays are a, a dream sequence of all the perfect things that a patient needs. Um, but everywhere else, uh, I've talked to folks all over in the U.S., in South America, in Europe, um, and in a, and even just like family and friends connection in South Africa. Uh, this issue is something that we're all addressing. Uh, and that got really exciting for me, right? The fact that I have been able to find some objective truth about how to do this because it all is connected to values and investment and how important we do or do not think that food is. 
So you're hopeful that change Very, will happen. Oh my goodness, yes. Very hopeful. Um, and uh, when when everything sort of unraveled about the state of affairs of our long-term care homes during you know the, mm-hmm. the, 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 this first run of the virus outbreak, and we heard these horrible, horrible stories about how these folks were living and being treated, um, I obviously was most interested in hearing the reports about the food uh, and what they had discovered. And it was just like, the, it was the most awful thing. Like the, the reports, like the worst case scenario with like stacks of surrendered trays that had not been cleared away by staff. Right? Horrible. Uh, and that there were sufficient amounts of critters and all these things sort of rolling mm-hmm. all over these plates. And what really struck me was the fact that, that I, I remember I was, t- I was sitting with my mother and I said, mom, remember, this is that garbage industrial, highly processed food. Right. That and this mm-hmm. food stays suspiciously non-perishable for a very right. long time. So if you just think about how long these trays had to sit there for that food to start, you know what I mean? Molding over and very and, good point and catching pests. Right. It is it is it is the, 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 the issue is a bigger problem than we are than you see on site, because once you realize that this is food that will never actually really go bad uh, to see that it is very bad and full of critters uh, is just uh, it, the, the indignity of it is more than I can handle. It's horrible. It's absolutely horrible. So having worked now in, in that setting, um, where are you at today? What, what are you doing today? I know COVID obviously has impacted yes. everybody in this industry, chefs, restaurateurs, nobody's been spared. Nope. How has that impacted you and what are you doing today? It's uh well, me, like many other people, I think there was that like one fateful afternoon in March where in 30 minutes of uh, looking at my emails, all, all of my income for the, for the following five <laughs> months had just literally dissolved into the air. Uh, sure. And it, like it just it got it got laughable at the end of it all. Right. When and, and listen, that was also a point in time where we were all really just getting used to the idea that this was a reality. That's right. Uh, right. It was all very new. Um, and so I and and I'm, I remember thinking to myself, well, uh, we're all going to like I'm not the only one. Right. That's this right. Is, this is not just me. We're all going to be in this together. So hopefully the solution is going to be just as collective. Uh, right. Which which it, it, it is. And it has been. Uh, we're definitely all commiserating. But I there's a couple of cool things that have grown because I, the book was released in the middle of this. Yes, I remember. Um, and I was very sad to not have the parties that I had planned. I know. Uh, right. The, the dresses have been ordered and they wait expectantly <laughs> on a hanger for the moment where they can yeah. be worn. Right. Um, and so that was sad. Uh, and to not just be in a room with my people and celebrate that this thing is now alive and in the world. Uh, and we're going to have that party for sure. Once we are allowed to get close enough to clink a glass, we will have that party. Uh, but the uh, in the really incredible opportunity that I have uh, to like, okay, I was concerned about how I was going to get people's attention around institutional food systems. It's mm-hmm. not a very sexy thing to talk about. I knew that when I had them, that I had the bulleted list and I had the arguments and I was ready. But how was I going to lure people in? You know, how was I going to get them sure. to turn their heads in my direction? Uh, and uh, quite literally, that has already happened, right? The universe <laughs> has yes. shifted everybody's focus right towards the resilience of our food systems and our public institutions. That's uh, very true. And that is a so that is an undeniable gift. Right. The yeah. fact that I can actually put a book in people's hands being like, yeah, I got a plan for this. I know. <laughs> I know. Here we go. Let's do it. I, I've seen this coming uh, and I know how to handle this. And I, and I am ready. Right. To, to work, to pull ourselves, to pull us out of this situation. That's a very good point, because this pandemic has shone the light on so many things yeah. food related, whether oh, yeah. it's the restaurant industry, the democratization of food, a, a whole bunch of issues. Yep. Um, but also from the restaurant perspective, as someone who, you know, knew right from the beginning that maybe though you love to cook, you didn't yes. want to do it in the restaurant setting. 
when you look at everything that's going on in restaurants today, um, you know, there's been obviously the industry is in trouble mm-hmm. um, and there's been a lot of calls, you know, from various groups to a either save hospitality or to change hospitality. Right. The model has, you know, has been broken for a long time and yes. that has now come into play in a bigger way than ever. Um, as someone who's worked in that area, but also looked at it from a different perspective, what do you think needs to be changed in the industry? And, and what parts of it maybe should be saved, but there's aspects of it that, you know, need to be retooled. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I firmly believe that there are both elements at work. Um, the things that I think uh, that I'm quite delighted that we are shining a light on is uh, exploitive treatment of, of chefs and cooks in the kitchen, right? Mm-hmm. From gender stuff to race stuff to uh, to sexuality, like it's just... Uh, the, the the charm of that has completely worn off, right? That is not, uh, our, our kitchens uh, and our dining rooms have become really dangerous places for the people who work there. Uh, mm-hmm. And it, it, it that needs to change. That model needs to change. Uh, and, and that there's a way to do it. It's not to say that, that, you know, you will lose, the food won't taste as good. Like that's not a thing, right? Of we course. Will still, we will, in fact, I would hope that the food would taste better if people are not living under a yoke of, you know, violence and oppression. Yeah, they're uh, happier. Right? <laughs> that maybe the food will taste nicer. Yeah. Um, so, so I'm really glad that we are finally looking to to sweep some of this stuff out, right? And really rethink, uh, really rethink restaurants uh, and how we run restaurants, how we you know how they serve their communities. Uh, I'm delighted at that opportunity. Now, I will say though that um, unfortunately, part of what's happening to our industry is a reflection of our very low collective priority around food and our lo- and mm-hmm. our really sort of distanced uh, understanding of the role that food and, and the restaurant industry plays in our lives, right? And this is, I'm talking about things like the hospitality industry is like the largest employer in the city, mm-hmm. right? Um, but the, the one of the pieces that, that we don't think about is that we, the industry also, like we employ a lot of people, but we also support a number of other industries, right? And then what I'm talking about here is like, you have a florist and you have beer sales and you have a guy that comes to clean to replace your floor mats. And then there's the linens, you know, and then there's the, obviously the food suppliers and the farmers and the uniform people, uh, right? The people that run your POS system. There's all of these little industries and all of them take hits once all the restaurants shut down. That's right. right? It's a trickle and, down effect. Yeah. Yes. And, and it's, it's almost exponential in its impact. Uh, and I, so I, what the reason I think that there's value in these ideas about saving hospitality and changing hospitality is that the role that we play in supporting communities is vital, right? It is vital. We, this, the food is the thing that helps the, that, that helps people sort of move around uh, a city. Well, it's in the search of food. It's a coffee shop. It's a lunch spot. It's a grocery right. store. It's a, ideally it's a community garden or something else like that. These are the places in our world where we connect with food. Um, and so to lose that, I think would be a major, major loss. Um, and so I hope, I really hope that the value of food and the value of chefs uh, and servers and the hospitality of that entire experience is something, uh, I, I do believe that it is something that has shone brighter in front of people's eyes right now. I think people have had a, a uh, some people anyhow, those who are open to it, let's say, have had a, a brighter understanding of what it feels like when when restaurants are shut, when coffee shops are closed down, when that that bit of culture on the ground does not exist, um, it is a problem. And so, from that perspective, I really think uh, support and attention and investment is required. I think that's very well said, and I think you know through this period we've all missed restaurants so yes. much. You know, they're more than just a place to eat. Really, they are part of the community. So, um, so very well said. Thank you, mm-hmm. Josh. Now, as a way to to wrap up today's discussion, because I could speak to you forever uh, about all this nice. stuff. It's yes. it's wonderful um, insights. Um, what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned through this? through this time. And obviously it's been a challenging time for everybody from a business perspective, Mm -hmm. but also from a personal one, it's changed all of our lives. 
what have you learned that has uh, that has kind of given you um, some pause to to, to hmm. think? That is a really good question. I, you know what? I have really, hmm, I have learned, uh, I've learned a, a personal lesson about my relationship with food for sure. Um, and it's, it's something that I constantly uh, deliberate over because I stand on a soapbox yelling and screaming about how people should spend more time in the kitchen and invest in cooking. Um, and there are times where I just feel like I need to make sure that I do that myself. You know what I mean? And then right. I will take my own advice um, and lockdown and core, you know, the quarantine really pushed me there as well. Uh, and I had to I have had to sort of relearn some of my own habits and my own thoughts. One of one of the things I've never been great at is cooking for myself. Interesting. Right. Hardly ever. I will have an egg and a piece of toast more than anything. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. And there are so many times I would consciously pre lockdown. Anyhow, I would invite people over just so I'd get a good meal in, you know, uh, it was, it was <laughs> ridiculous, right. It was ridiculous. But now when I had this scenario where I can't invite anybody over, but cooking is such a soothing thing to do, right. Like right. everybody else. Uh, I was like, I was like, okay, I'm going to have to, Oh, I'm, I made, beautiful meals for myself uh, and I took the time to do this uh, and because I'm the only one here I had to I had to make better friends with leftovers than I usually do <laughs> yes right I'm not a, usually a fan once I've experienced a thing I'm done with it and I need to I want to move on so generally speaking for me I will pack it up and share it with somebody else uh, but I, I didn't have that opportunity this time and so I had to eat it all myself uh, and the while that was new behavior and, you know, I wished that I could do different things. I was really happy for the reinforcement of the lesson, even to me, right? Somebody who screams and yells about this for everybody else. I learned some very important lessons in the value of the taking the time to nourish myself well, particularly, you know what I mean? Under the looming threat of a global pandemic, yeah. uh, right? T take really investing in taking care of myself and, and the fact that, that the, that the kitchen is my happy place. Uh, so go there, be there. Don't be, a, you know what I mean? Don't shy away from spending the afternoon baking something beautiful. Sure. Uh, do it. Well, that's a pretty funny thing from a chef. That yeah. is a lesson that <laughs> you learned. But, but it makes sense because I think... You know, we're always um, we're always so time starved too, right? Yes. That we tend to take the easy way out sometimes. Yep. Well, Josh, now, like I said, uh, we could go on forever, and I really do appreciate the time and energy to to chat with us today. Um, mm -hmm. you, you've done incredible work on, you know, with food systems and the food community, and um, and your book is wonderful. So, if thank anybody you. hasn't picked it up, they really should. It's it's a great read. Um, and really, thank you so much for your for your time and for sharing your expertise and your insights. And um, and I look forward to seeing you personally sometime very yes. soon. Oh, it'll be such a treat. Thank you for having me and for this time. All right. You take care and stay safe. You as well, Rosanna. Thank you. We appreciate you joining us for this episode of the Table Talk podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd love for you to rate and review our show. Also, make sure you never miss an episode by clicking the subscribe button. For additional resources related to today's episode, please visit our website, foodserviceandhospitality.com. Until next time.